And uh, what do you do when those things happen? We've been talking about seeing God work through man. Seeing God's power on display through man. And we've seen that in several different instances in Scripture. And it's really interesting to go back and read the stories. And to say, wow, we have an awesome, powerful God, right? Amen? But what happens in the day-to-day? Just the day-to-day. You wake up and you can't find the shirt that you wanted to wear to work. It's just a little thing, but doggone it all. Where is it? I want to know where it's at. Or you go to take, you know, something, and it just, just one by one, just things are just not as you expected. And you're like, really? This is how it's going to go today. Really? Okay. If you say so. I don't like it, but okay. But what is your response to those things that don't go right, don't go according to plan, don't fit within the expectations that you had for this day or this week or this month or your life as a whole. I'm just continually reminded that God has a reason and a plan for everything that He does and allows in our life. And this week, as I was thinking about how to close out this series of God's power on display in man, the verse that just kept coming to my mind comes from 1 Samuel. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel this morning for a few moments. But God has a plan and a reason for everything that he allows. And I can either trust that, or I can get angry about it. I know what my flesh wants to do, but I also know that's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to stop and pray and say, God, what is it that you're trying to teach me? I'm not really in the mood to learn, but okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? What are you, what are you trying to teach me here? But the day-to-day is where it really gets real, where the rubber meets the road, where your faith is put to the test, where your actions are challenged. How do you respond? I shared a portion of this passage, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago. I don't even remember when, because I have some verses underlined in my other Bible, so I must have at some point. But this is the story of David, or a portion of his life. I want us to look at how David responded to the things that he didn't choose, to the things that he would not have chosen if he had the opportunity to choose. And I dare say that most of us in this room have things that we would not choose. Things that we don't like. Things that just irritate us. And yet we have to ask ourselves, is God a great God? Does God make mistakes? Does God know exactly what he's doing in our life? And the answer to all those questions is yes. He's a great God. He's powerful. He doesn't make make any mistakes. He knows what he's doing. So I can either accept it, or I can get angry and bitter. Let's see how David responded. But before we do that, let's just take a moment and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you this morning, Lord, I speak for myself and hopefully for many in this auditorium this morning, Lord, that we submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit's leading through the message this morning. Lord, that you would allow us to learn the things that we need to learn. And Lord, that we would 
with your help, Lord, apply these things to our lives that we would draw closer to you, become more like you. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to be honest, too. It's one thing to acknowledge that it's a great story about David, but it's another thing to acknowledge that we struggle with the very same things. Things happen in our life that we wouldn't choose, that we don't pick, but you allow. So Lord, help us to be honest about it, and then Lord, help us to be obedient to what you'd have us to do in response. And we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Expectations. We all have them, right? I mean, we wake up in the morning, or at least we expect that we're going to wake up in the morning. And that through that waking up, we're going to get dressed, we're going to go about our day, we're going to you know, get in our car, and it's not going to need gas, and there's not going to be no flat tires, and everything's going to work perfect, right? Everything's just going to go just, just as planned. We all have those expectations. But that's not always life. And I think for David, David was just kind of simply at this point in his life, just simply out doing what his father told him to do. He's out tending the sheep. There's only one problem here. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, David was anointed king, but Saul was still on the throne. Talk about things not being fair. However, God's spirit had left Saul, and a series of events began to take place in David's life and in Saul's life. And the first, thing, the first event that took place is that Goliath comes on the scene. Uh, anybody want to tackle Goliath in here? Anybody want to? Yeah, no, nobody wanted to. In fact, he ridiculed the Israelites, and over and over he just sat out there and mimicked and mocked and, and scorned them and, and allowed them to remain in fear until David comes on the scene and he said, Is there not a cause? In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 29, Is there not a cause? Will not anybody go out and fight against this man who is making us look like nothing? When we are, in fact, God's children. Anybody want to fight him? Not too many people want to just stand up and say, Hey, I, I volunteer. I, I, pick me, pick me. Not happening. But David was willing. And what happens is that Saul becomes eaten up with jealousy. This is the second thing. And he tries to kill David. I don't know about you, but when anybody tries to kill somebody, that person should probably run. Right? I mean, that sounds logical. It sounds like a fairly reasonable thing to do. If someone's trying to throw a javelin at you, somebody's trying to kill you, you run. I'm not going to stick around to see how much blood I can lose. I'm going to go. But David, according to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 14, I like how it says it in the King James. It says, David behaved himself wisely. How many of you as parents have ever told your kids to behave before? That better put you in a generation, right? I said to behave. I heard that from my mom growing up. We don't hear that a lot anymore, but it says that David behaved himself wisely. Can you imagine that? Somebody just tries to kill him and he behaves himself wisely. What does that even mean? I'd be getting out my own guns. My own knives, my own spears. Oh, you think you're going to spear? Well, try this one out. I want to take care of matters, right? I mean, then our natural fleshly thing to do is to deal with it. Somebody tries to kill me, I'm going to try to kill him back. David didn't do that. According to verse 14, 
I love this. It says, and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. He behaved himself in everything that he did. Wisely, God's word tells us, 1 Samuel. And then the third thing is that Saul tries to kill David again. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. And what was David's response? Not, what are you doing? He says, what have I done? What have I done? You see, the first thing that happens in most, in most circumstances where one person tries to do harm against someone else is that they want to defend themselves, right? Isn't that natural? I'm going to defend myself because I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of this. I don't know why you're doing this to me. I, 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 I. But the only I David used was, what have I done? Did I, did I do something wrong? David was looking at himself. And you see a picture of humility in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 1. David fled from Naoth in, in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Is there a chance that I'm in sin here? I don't know about you, but I think this is kind of a, a perfect storm for God to show up in. On and on and on, Saul and his men are pursuing David to take his life. To destroy him. Because there is jealousy. I mean, as soon as Goliath is dead, what did they say? David has killed his thousands, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David has ten thousands. He's eaten up with anger and jealousy. And I think David could have responded much differently. He could have justifiably defended himself, right? Would anybody argue with that? He could have justifiably defended himself and maybe even retaliated and killed Saul. And who would have been angry at that? He's defending himself. After all, he is the anointed king. He was the one that God has chosen to be the king of Israel. And yet he's not on the throne because Saul won't leave it. Couldn't he have justifiably taken matters in his own hands and said, I will be the king? And, but you don't see any of that in the life of David. What you see is that David chose to spare Saul's life. In fact, the first time David sees Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24, he sees Saul sleeping, and he goes up to him and takes his sword out and cuts off a piece of his garment. I mean, if you're that close, end the struggle. No, that's not what he did. He takes his knife and cuts off a piece of his garment. And then you see again in 1 Samuel chapter 26, David spares Saul's life again. In fact, David at this point has an allegiant army of men, or at least a small band of men that are with him, who will defend him, who will fight for him. And they want at Saul badly. David, you just say the word. You don't even have to do it, David. If you just give us permission, we'll take care of Saul for you. Just say the word, David. We got this. How many of us would have said, you know what? Go for it. How many of us in Saul's or David's sandals would have done the same thing? Or would have ended the struggle? He didn't do it. 
But I dare say that David's in a situation where he needs God to work. He needs God's power to get through all this. And you know the story, as I shared part of it before, is that David goes and joins in at the end of the Philistine army as they're marching across the plains. But here's the problem. The Philistines knew who David was. And they're squirming in their sandals. They don't like it that Saul, I mean that David, is joining in the rear of their army. Why? We know what David is capable of. We know that if he turns on us, he's going to destroy us. And what happens if he decides to join up with Saul? Well, then he's going to turn on us again. We can't have him here with us. And they just want him gone. Do you realize at this point, David has no place to go. He needs to see God's power at this point. He needs to see that God is there with him. He needs to see that God is in control of the scenario. Anybody ever, anybody ever catch yourself in that situation? You need to see God at work. You want to see his hand at work in your life. That's where David's at right now. And David does the only thing he knows left to do. He tries to go back home. <clears throat> now remember, for some period of time, he's been going across the country, fleeing from Saul, just hiding out in, in the valley, hiding out in caves, hiding out anywhere he can get away from Saul because Saul's men are pursuing him. He's been living on the run, so to speak. And he's tired. He's exhausted. Put yourself in that scenario, you're probably hungry. Mentally exhausted. Have nowhere else to go. Situation where he needs to see God's hand at work. And so he does the only thing that he knows to do. And that's to go home. Now, I don't know about you, you've heard me make this statement before that fish start to stink about three days out of water. Um, I, think, I think David wanted to get back to his own aquarium. I don't care how nice the motel is, I like my bed, my pillow, my sheets, my blanket, my fan, my air conditioner, my whatever it is, I want my room. A day away, maybe a couple days, but i got to get back home. Can you imagine he's wanting to be back home? But there's a problem. When he gets there, home is not as, he, as it was when he left. So meanwhile, back on the home front, if you would take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29. Actually, verse on uh, chapter thirty. Excuse me, chapter thirty. So, beginning verse one. David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned Ziklag. Now, stop right there just for a moment. Ziklag was David's home. That's where all these men that had banded with David. That's where they lived. 
That's where they came from. They are wanting to go back home, go back to their families, be reacquainted with their loved ones. But they found out that the Amalekites had raided them and burned Ziklag. And it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 2. They also kidnapped the women and everyone in it, from the youngest to the oldest. They didn't kill anyone. They killed no one, but carried them off as they went on their way. And when David and his men arrived in the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. And David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. Stop right there. Put yourself in his shoes just for a moment. He's wanting to see his family. He's in a situation where he needs to see God at work. Right? He needs to know that God is there. That God's in control of this situation. That God's got everything under control. I can't blame him. The only problem is nothing is as he left it. The city's burned. Wives and children, family all gone. They had taken away the spoil of the conquered town of Ziklag. And they find themselves weeping until they cannot weep anymore. Is it anything different than what you and I would do? Probably not. They wept loudly until there was no more strength to even weep. You say, well, is it done now? Is it over now? I mean, is it... I mean, they're, they're there and they just accept situations as it is? No. Let's go on, verse 4. I'm oh, sorry, verse 5. David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the, wi- the widow Nebel, the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. And David was in an extremely difficult posi- position because the troops talked about stoning him. For they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. Stop right there. They wanted to kill him. Now think about this. They had just committed themselves to defending him by going all over the countryside and hiding out with him and fleeing Saul and his men. All these men that were saying, hey, we're with you, David. We're behind you. We're going to defend you. We're, 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 we're with you. Are now wanting to point the finger and say, David, this is your fault. Good opportunity for God to show up. Good opportunity for God to display His power right now. I don't know that any one of us have ever been put in that kind of a scenario before. Where everything we know, everything that we know has just been turned upside down. Everything we have, more or less, taken away. And we find ourselves, even with, for this moment in time, not even a friend. What do you do? What do you do? Because we're all going to face situations that we wouldn't choose. Situations that God has no doubt allowed into our lives. And we have a choice as to how we're going to respond to it. We can get mad and get angry. We can get frustrated. Which is what a lot of times what we do. Or we can say, God, what is it that you're trying to do? Here's what David chose to do at the end of verse 6. 
But David found strength in the Lord his God. What does that even mean? David found strength in the Lord his God. What does that mean? In our culture, what we do when things don't go right, what do we do? We get the phone out, we call somebody, and say, you're not going to believe what just happened. You're not going to believe what I'm going through. You're not going to believe what so-and-so said. You're not going to believe what happened at work today. And we get on the horn and we just start telling everybody everything. And then there's that select wonderful few that get on Facebook world and tell the world what happens. Rather than going to God first. The only one that can fix the problem to start with. It says that David found his strength in the Lord his God. I'm just telling you, every one of us are going to have people in our lives that do things that we would not choose, that we would not pick. Circumstances are going to be right there in front of us that we would, man, we just want to run from them. But God says, no, I want you to go through this. Sometimes it's an illness, health issue, a financial difficulty, Fill in the blank, a lost job, whatever. God uses all kinds of circumstances in our life, and we would never choose those things. We would never choose those things. Only, only someone crazy would choose those things. And yet God says, I want you to go through this, because through this you're going to learn some things that I'm trying to teach you. And David, at this point, found his strength and the Lord is God. But it doesn't stop there. As we go on, ask yourself a question. How do you respond to these things? How do, not, not how should you respond. How have you been responding to these things? I believe that David gives us a pattern that we can follow. And the first one is that. He found his strength in the Lord. You need to find your strength in the Lord. You can't find it in someone else sometimes. Sometimes you just have to go to the Lord. All the time we should go to the Lord. But here's the key thing, verse, verses 7 and 8. And David said to the priest, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar thought to him, brought it to him. And David asked the Lord, Should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? The second thing that David did in the midst of his difficulty is that he sought God's wisdom. He sought God's wisdom. He strengthened himself in the Lord, and then he sought God's wisdom. Can I just say this? Don't run to people. Emotionally, they might encourage you. Emotionally, they might be on your side and say, that's right, so-and-so shouldn't have done that, or this should have never happened, I can't believe that happened. And emotionally, they get you all charged up. and you know. But it's not a solution. The solution is in seeking God's wisdom. So he sought God's wisdom. He went through the priest. He said, should we pursue? I don't know about you, but Lone Ranger Syndrome right here, I mean, he's going. I'm going to get my family back. I don't care about all this stuff, but I'm going to get my family. Should I pursue? What would you do? 
Number three, he obeyed what God said. We see this in verses 9 and 10. So David and the 600 men with, with him went. And they came to the Wadi Besor where, they, where some stayed behind. David and 400 of them of the men continued the pursuit. Well, 200 stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the, the Wadi Besor. So they go on. 600 men that were left with David, 200 of them are just exhausted. Remember, they get home. There's nothing home at home for them. There's no food. There's no drink. There's, no, there's nothing there. They're exhausted, and yet they're on their pursuit of the enemy. But they can't go any further. So two, uh, I don't know about you, I want everybody, just by the way. I want as many as I can get, because I want more than the enemy has. Just a side note. But 200 stay here, and 400 keep going. You know what's amazing? If you've ever talked to somebody who is seeking advice and wisdom, one of the most frustrating things that can happen is that someone asks for advice, they ask for wisdom, and then they leave and do the exact opposite. I can't tell you how many times over the last 23 years of ministry that that has happened. Someone's in my office saying, Pastor, I, I got this situation, I'm not sure what to do. And you say, well, according to God, we should probably do this, this, and this, and I think you need to talk to so-and-so about this, and we have this plan, it's like, oh, that sounds great, and they walk out and they do the exact opposite. And they wonder why the struggle continues. It's one thing to know what God says to do. It's another thing to do it. David not only sought the wisdom, but when God gave the answer, he followed through on it. That's the key to seeing God at work. We have no expectation that God's going to do anything if we're not first obeying. Did you get that? We cannot have any expectation that God's going to show his power if we're not going to walk in obedience. You have to know that. You can't have the blessings without the obedience. The obedience comes first. So David takes off. And then we see number four. Verses 18 and 19. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and daughters and all the plunder of the Amalekites had taken. David got everything back. Think about that. You say, well, how did that happen? Was it coincidence? I don't believe so. I don't believe in coincidence when it comes to God's word. I hope you don't either. Let me tell you how God did it. Look back at verse 11. David's men found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. Then they gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins. After he ate, he revived, for he didn't eat food or drink water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, Who do you belong to? Where are you from? He says, I am an Egyptian, the slave of the Amalekite man, he said. My master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. We raided the south country of the Cherethites in the territory of Judah and the south country of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. Oops. <laughs> I don't know that I would be saying anything more than I had to at this point. All of a sudden, David is in 
presence of the man who was partly responsible for burning his town and his village. Coincidence? No. Why do I say that? Verse 15, David then asked him, Will you lead me to these raiders? He said, Swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master, and I will lead you to them. So he led him, and there were the Amalekites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, and celebrating because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines in the land of Judah. Verse 17, David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day. None of them escaped except 400 young men who got on camels and fled. Coincidence? No. We don't serve a God of coincidence. As David went before the priest and said, should I pursue after these men? He said, pursue. Did God know that he was going to come in contact with one of these guys who was too sick to go on? Could tell him exactly where they were and what they were doing? You see, God always has a plan. He always has a, a purpose. He always has a, an idea of what's going to happen next, even though we may not know it. And God thereby shows his power to do everything that he said he would do. And he told him to go, pursue, knowing that David would be rewarded for his obedience. We have to understand that all these circumstances in our lives are for a purpose. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good to them that are called according to His purpose. Right? Love God and are called according to His purpose. He knows what He's doing. Why? Verse 29, that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. God's going to show His power in His time to accomplish His will. In all these circumstances that we saw, God did what He did, not for the person, although it was a benefit to them, He does what he does to bring glory to himself. He always does that. And I have to trust God. I have to love him enough to know that he's not going to make mistakes with my life either. He knows what he's doing. What happens if I choose not to follow David's pattern? What was his pattern? Well, he strengthened himself in the Lord. He sought God's wisdom. He did what God told him to do. And then God rewarded him for his obedience. What happens if I choose not to follow the pattern that David did? Well, Hebrews twelve fifteen says that we can look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up in you, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness will creep into our life. Because you know what? We're a people who have been programmed to, to think that we get what we want. We deserve what we want. Do we not see that in our culture? I mean, we want to be a country of diversity but we're only as diverse as long as you agree with me. We're seeing it every day in the news. I didn't get what I want, so I'm going to shoot somebody. Oh, I don't like what he stands for, so therefore I'm going to pick it. But if you you believe what I believe, then then, then we're all good. But we've been so programmed to get what we want, to think we deserve what we like. But what happens is, When we don't get what we want, bitterness slips in. And I found, and I was taught in school years ago, that bitterness usually comes in two circumstances. Either I wanted something and God said no, so I didn't get my way. I wanted something and God said no. 
Or I had something and God took it away, and I'm upset about it. I wanted something, God said no. Or I had something and God took it away, and I'm angry about it. Two perfectly good opportunities to allow bitterness to creep into our life. And when bitterness creeps in, it destroys and defiles. So I need to learn to say, God, what is it that you want in this? I'm going to wait for you to show your power, your might. You see, David, if, we're, if he were to do his own thing, I believe with all my heart he would have failed. He was submissive to the Lord's leading. He was submissive to what God wanted. And when we put ourselves in that situation, God will work. But it's a choice we all have. I don't know about you, but I have my expectations. Anyone else? But a lot of different things. And if I'm honest with myself, and if you're honest with yourself, those expectations have not been met. And I have a, resp- I have a choice as to how I'm going to respond to that. Either God has something different, something better, something else in mind, or I'm going to get bitter and become defiled over it because I didn't get what I wanted. It's a choice every day. But it's an opportunity for God to show his power in all of us. But I don't believe that God's going to show his power until we submit to him. I'll say it again. You can't have the blessings without obedience. So, well, there's a lot of people who have a lot of stuff, and they're far from God. Yep. Just because they have stuff doesn't mean they get the blessings. Might be that they're just rich. <laughs> Had nothing to do with God's blessing. I want God's blessing. And I'm willing to wait for God to show himself strong to do that. It's a great plan to find your strength in the Lord. I don't know what kind of struggles you've been through, but I know that you need to find your strength in God and Him alone. He's the only one that can help you. You know, there are more self-help books written than almost any other subject I've been told. Why? Because everybody's always looking for a solution. Everybody's looking for help. Everybody's looking for an answer. Everybody wants to know why. Rather than saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. I love you enough to trust you. That you're not going to do anything in my life that's not for my own good. That's what David was doing. David had the right, from a fleshly standpoint, to take matters in his own hands. Who would have argued? But yet he didn't. He said, God, what do you want to do? And could this be my fault that I'm going through this? He didn't blame anyone else. He didn't say Saul is a jerk. No, didn't read that. He said, God, this is your situation. I'm going to trust you through it. It's a great pattern for all of us to follow. Amen? Let's learn from it. So that bitterness does not creep in to, to defile and destroy who we are as God's children. Let's pray.